Good evening. Protests sweep the capital of Myanmar after a military coup overturns an election. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez faces down a threat again, waiting for the vaccine and food and the agriculture secretary. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, February 2nd, 2021. Residents in Yangon, the capital of Myanmar, were bringing pots and pans on their balconies, protesting against a military coup today. On Monday, the army ousted the ruling National League for Democracy from power, arresting its leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, and other senior officials. The army declared a state of emergency in response to alleged fraud during the legislative elections in November. Shouts could be heard wishing the detained leader good health and calling for freedom. The coup came as lawmakers gathered in the Capitol for the opening of a new parliamentary session. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said today he supports the Biden administration's threats to impose sanctions on the coup leaders. I've had an interest in Burma for many years since I chaired the Appropriations Subcommittee for State and Foreign Operations. Just last November here on the floor, I cautiously celebrated Burma's recent elections. I warned that its military remained a toxic influence and an obstacle to democratic progress. And sure enough, the world was horrified over the weekend when Burma's military rounded up the country's civilian political leadership, including Aung San Suu Kyi and civil society leaders. The military was afraid that popular support for the new government would yield the constitutional and economic reforms they've long opposed. So they've tried to simply claim control for themselves. I spoke with President Biden and Secretary Blinken yesterday about the situation in Burma. The new administration deserves credit for approaching the situation in a way that's bipartisan and coordinated with Congress. The world is watching. I hope and expect the United States will quickly make the obvious legal determination that this is a military coup and impose significant costs on the military for its attack on democracy. We've already have, we already have sanctions in place against key military officials in that country, and Congress has already given the executive branch the authorities it actually needs to swiftly apply even more sanctions to the military and its infiltration into Burma's economy. The Chinese Communist Party's state news organ dismissively called the events in Burma a major cabinet reshuffle. A cabinet reshuffle? That's a joke. And the free world knows it. This is a military coup and an attack on democracy, plain and simple. The director of nonviolence international is Michael Beer. He's made many trips to Myanmar over three decades. He prefers to call it Myanmar over Burma. That's what the elected government called it, Myanmar. And he sides with their um, use of that word to describe the country, although either I'm told, is uh, is acceptable. While supporting nonviolent protests in the country, Michael Beer has visited that country on several occasions. He says the Myanmar military is copying former President Trump's strategy of criticizing the validity of an election they lost. The military has fully taken over and prevented the newly elected uh, members of parliament from uh, uh, getting their seats. And it reminds me a little bit of what's happening, have tried to happen in the United States with Trump, who didn't like the election and tried to overturn it. In this case, the military political party lost badly in the election. 
and they were so upset that they accused the the civilian government uh, and, and major political party that has been ruling of engaging in electoral fraud, uh, which are uh, not really serious a- allegations, and they have used that as an excuse to take over completely the government and to put the uh, uh, the civilian government in house arrest. Myanmar had already made this transition and had a civilian president for quite a number of years now. How did it get to this? What happened? It's most unfortunate. The power of the military has not really been brought down in a huge way. There was a civilian government, but they shared power with the military, which remained very strong in the Constitution, and they had a guaranteed 25% members of Parliament were for the military. It's a little bit surprising to everybody around the world about why the military would want to actually try to do a coup since they already have so much power over the civilian government in many ways. But one speculation is that the outgoing military leader was about to turn 65 years old, in which case he had to retire from the military and then would therefore have to step out of political power and then would be susceptible to, as a civilian, maybe for the civilian authorities to go after his vast wealth that he's accumulated as a military man. It looks like he's very greedy for power and wanted to stay in power. It may be as simple as the fact that the military leader was about to turn 65. Otherwise, it's difficult to explain why they would want to take over the civilian part of the government because that deals with the health and education and economics of the citizenry. And for this, they will get lots of criticism for sure. In their previous role, they only had to take care of national defense and their own military and uh, could do as much corrupt business as they wanted. So it's a disappointing situation, very shocking situation that they would take over. As a result, the people of Burma are rising up. The doctors are going on strike, according to the BBC. In addition, last night, there are wonderful videos showing people banging pots and pans by the thousands. You can hear them. The sounds are just enormous. There are lots of ethnic minorities that are outraged in Burma at what's going on because the military has always been very, very hostile to ethnic minorities and were the architects of the genocidal actions against the Rohingya. So there's going to be a lot of opposition. In the last election, 75-80% of the seats went to the parties other than the military party. And so there's vast public opinion that is opposed to this military takeover in Burma. What about the Rohingya people? Is this a threat to them, uh, any more of a threat than they've already faced? It probably is more of a threat now because the military has always been in charge of this issue, but they're now even there's no even restraints from any kind of civilian government. It's worrying about the Rohingya and all the ethnic minorities of Burma. I would encourage all citizens here in the United States to consider boycotting companies for that are supporting uh, military or supporting or owned by the Burma military. You can find some of this information on the Nonviolence International website, nonviolenceinternational.net. 
Michael Beer is the director of Nonviolence International. The United Nations is split in denouncing the coup with Russia and China close to the military leaders of Myanmar blocking a statement while others have come forward to say that this is what it seems a military coup. Puerto Rico is slated to receive more than $6 billion in federal funds to help prepare for future hurricanes and other disasters. Governor Pedro Pierluisi says the um, money is coming from the Department of Housing and Urban Development. He added the island nation under U.S. control for more than a century also has access to $3.2 billion to continue rebuilding from Hurricanes Irma and Maria. You may remember President Trump's visit to the island in 2017, where he callously tossed out rolls of paper towels to desperate people after the hurricane devastated the island. And White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki made the announcement about the money for Puerto Rico today. The administration is releasing $1.3 billion in aid allocated by Congress to Puerto Rico that can be deployed to protect against future climate disasters. In partnership with the Puerto Rico Department of Housing, the administration is also working to remove onerous restrictions put in place by the last administration on nearly $5 billion in additional funds. Congress had assigned $67 billion to help with reconstruction efforts after the hurricanes. But of the $43 billion that was finally offered, Puerto Rico has only received $18 billion. In one of the bloodiest days in bureau history, two FBI agents were killed and three wounded in a shooting in Florida on Tuesday. I know the town well, Lauder Hill, Florida. The agents arrived to search an apartment in a child pornography case. The suspect is believed to have killed himself. Residents of the Fort Lauderdale suburb of Sunrise huddled inside their homes as a SWAT team stormed the apartment. FBI Director Christopher Ray identified the two slain agents as Daniel Alfin and Laura Schwarzenberger, both of whom specialized in investigating crimes against children. Two of the wounded agents were taken to hospitals to be treated and were in stable condition. The third was okay. Senate lawmakers today confirmed, meanwhile, Senate lawmakers today confirmed Alejandro Mayorkas as Secretary of Homeland Security. He'll be the first Senate-confirmed leader in nearly two years to lead the agency. The Senate voted 56 to 43 to confirm Mayorkas, pardon me, Mayorkas, making him the first immigrant and first Latino to lead the department, which oversees and enforces U.S. immigration policy. Mayorkas will confront the big job of rolling back many Trump administration immigration policies, as well as taking on violent domestic terrorism in the wake of the January 6th invasion of the Capitol by supporters of former President Trump. Meanwhile, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced a Democratic-sponsored bill to ask the FBI to redouble its investigation of violent domestic terrorism groups. Domestic terrorism, which we saw rear its ugly, horrible head on the 6th of January. Our resolution does two things. It condemns domestic terrorism, violent white supremacists, neo-Nazis, anti-government religious, and dangerous fringe conspiracies like QAnon. We call on the FBI to review the threat posed by domestic terrorist groups, including examining the growth of such groups and the use of social media and other forms of communication to recruit new members and organize and plan acts of violence.
Senator Chuck Schumer. Last night, New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez dropped a 90-minute video telling the in-depth story of her terrifying and harrowing hours trapped in the United States Capitol as angry protesters roamed the hall, hunting her by name, as Ocasio-Cortez huddled in a locked bathroom. Here's an excerpt. When all of a sudden I hear boom, 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 boom on my door. And then I hear these huge, violent bangs on my door and then every door going into my office. Just bang, bang. Oh, shoot. See, look, I'm banging over again. <laughs> bang, 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 bang. Like someone was trying to break the door down. And um, there were no yells, no one saying who they were, nobody identifying themselves, and just boom, boom, boom. And I, I just get up like this, and I run over to the legislative office, and I run over to G, and G just looks at me back, and he just goes, hide, hide, run and hide. And so I, I run back into my office. I slam my door. There's another kind of like back area to my office. And um, I, I open it and there's a closet and, and a bathroom. And I jump into my bathroom um, and I close the door. And I just keep hearing these bang, bang, bang. And then I realized that I, the bathroom was the wrong choice. I, I should have jumped into the closet. So I start opening the door to the bathroom so that I can, I start opening the door to my bathroom and I'm gonna run across um, to the closet. I open the door when all of a sudden I hear that whoever was trying to get inside got into my office. And then I realize that it's too late, that it's too late for me to get into the closet. I go back in and I, I hide back in, in the bathroom behind the door. And then I just start to hear these yells of, where is she? Where is she? I hide behind my door and I just hear, where is she? Where is she? I thought everything was and that is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, counsel, uh, pardon me, uh, representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of Queens. Program note, WBAI will replay, uh, replay Representative Ocasio-Cortez's recounting of the story of what happened to her in the Capitol on January 6th between 7 and 8 p.m. tonight. The representative has come under a blizzard of death threats and vicious comments with anonymous and uh, both anonymous and public since she was elected to Congress in an upset over a machine politician more than two years ago. She was reelected easily in November despite a big money campaign aimed against her. Ocasio-Cortez is an advocate of the Green New Deal and she drives an electric car. Characteristics that earn the ire of Fox News right wing ideological hitman Tucker Carlson. Wait, let's just be honest for a second. That woman is a tool of corporate power. 
posing as a truth teller. Look at her campaign contributions. Who is supporting her campaigns? People who want to change the subject away from economics to identity politics. That whole pose is fraudulent in her case. But listen specifically to what she says and think about the effect on the people listening, the people standing in airports who hear her say that. Quote, fealty to white supremacist organizations as a political tool. What does that even mean? We're not even sure who she's talking about. Apparently the Republican Party and its grand legal Kevin McCarthy of California. This is a fantasy. It's a very dark fantasy designed to terrify people and make them easier to command. And back on the Hill, Agriculture Secretary nominee Tom Vilsack received bipartisan praise from senators during his confirmation hearing Tuesday, with the Senate panel voting unanimously to advance his nomination to lead the United States Department of Agriculture again. He said today, it's not lost on me, ironically, that this is Groundhog Day and I'm back again. He quipped in his opening remarks for the Senate Agriculture Committee. Vilsack, who is president of the dairy lobby group, the U.S. Dairy Export Council, served for eight years as head of the USDA under former President Obama. But food activists say they're wary of Vilsack, who ignored the century-long plight of black farmers who were cut out of white, of a whites-only uh, farm programs and support programs and was a lobbyist with the uh, dairy industry, a adversary of small dairy farmers. Senior policy analyst for Food and Water Watch is Amanda Starbuck. She says big corporations are pushing out family farmers with help from Vilsack. What we have here is an example of the revolving door between industry and public office. So he was a former governor of Iowa. He became ex-secretary under Obama. And then after his eight years, the U.S. Dairy Export Council snapped him up to become their one of their chief lobbyists or CEO. So he went straight into working for the U.S. Dairy Export Council, which is essentially a lobbying arm for the, for the large dairy corporations, working on behalf of the processors and not necessarily the family-scale farm back home. And so that's, that's a lot of concern to us that he had four years in a very cushy um, corporate role, and now he's returning back to USDA. That is, to me, a very clear conflict of interest. What, is, what happens if uh, you have somebody like this who, uh, who feels that, uh, you know, who's a pragmatist? Let's follow what the big companies are doing. What's wrong with that? Oh, there's lots of things wrong with that because, first of all, there is a, a disconnect between, you know, the corporate consolidation and our food system and actual food prices. A lot of times the argument is that, you know, monopolies help drive down the price. We all have cheaper food because of the system that we're in. But the data doesn't actually point to that. We've done some analysis over the years looking at the rise in corporate consolidation within the food industry, for instance, in the beef packing industry, and then the prices that consumers are actually paying at the till. So over the past 30 years, the farmer's share, each head of cattle they sell, has fallen about 8%, but we're paying 70% more for our ground beef. There is this disconnect between our prices and the corporate control. Now, that's a really important issue when it comes to dairy farmers, right? The average dairy farm today cannot even make up the price of production. So that's to say that the price of dairy that farmers receive on the farm is so low that it hardly even covers, you know, for most farmers, it's not even covered what it costs to make it. That's a huge problem, and that's really what's stemming a lot of the crisis that we see among dairy producers. Look, the USDA census that came out a couple of years ago showed that we had nearly 10,000 fewer dairies of any size in 2017 compared to 2012. Over that same time period, 
dairy exports has really increased and it's made a lot of revenue and a lot of funds for these big corporations that Vilsack has, you know, most recently been lobbying for. But that revenue is not meeting the farmers on the ground. It doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, here's a Democrat, Joe Biden, and one of the key uh, battleground states is Wisconsin, where dairy farmers still are a big part of the economy. Vermont, upstate New York, a lot of places. So why is he siding with the corporate interests and not, uh, you would think, his the people who supported him? I can't answer that question for him. I mean, I would like to ask that question <laughs> to his face. You know, why aren't you supporting the farmers on the ground? Um you know, it could just be that that financial conflict of interest is that he's been paid by the lobbying arm for the last four years. So can we really expect him to all of a sudden switch gears? There is a lot of outcry from farmers in states like Vermont and Wisconsin when he was nominated to be the secretary again, just because a lot of farmers do not feel like they speak for his or he speaks for their interests. What should we expect from uh, uh, agricultural policy in a uh, in a Biden administration uh, considering that food stamps, things like that, are being increased, and he's presented himself as the uh, anti-hunger president. I think we're going to see, in a lot of ways, business as usual. Look, our, our whole farm system is broken. It's it's owned by a few corporations along every step of the food supply chain. This is driving down farm income. This is raising the prices. And this is further exacerbating food access. You know, the number of grocery stores is diminishing as you have consolidation within that industry, and that is driving food scarcity and food access as well. So if you're not actually addressing the elephant at the table, the consolidation within our food industry, you can only do so much. So he really needs to live up to the promises he made back in his first tenure as agricultural secretary and address corporate consolidation within our food system. Amanda Starbuck, a senior policy analyst for Food and Water Watch. Vilsack reportedly angered progressive groups while heading up the USDA under Obama by letting poultry factories self-regulate, speeding up the approval process for GMO crops, shelving new regulations on big ag, and crafting an industry-friendly national GMO labeling bill intended to replace a pioneering stricter standard in Vermont. The move helped earn him the derisive moniker, Mr. Monsanto. And Donald Trump endangered the lives of all members of Congress when he aimed a mob of supporters like a loaded cannon at the U.S. Capitol. That's what House Democrats will say this uh, was said today in making their most detailed case yet for why the former president should be convicted and permanently barred from office. Trump denied the allegations through his lawyers and called the trial unconstitutional. That earned a comment from Minority Leader McConnell. I did uh, yesterday express myself on that particular new member of the House. And uh, I think I adequately spoke out about how I feel about any effort to define the Republican Party in such a way. Um, I think that pretty well covers my my view on that. Do you wish, though, you spoke out about Donald Trump's conspiracies about the election being stolen much earlier than you ultimately did? Well, with regard to the former president, we're going into an impeachment trial next week. Uh, We're all going to listen to what the lawyers have to say and making the arguments and work our way through it. And at the beginning of that comment, uh, the McConnell was commenting on uh, uh, Representative Green of Georgia, who has come under attack for her connection with the QAnon and other conspiracy theories that we were referring earlier in the newscast.
Closer to home, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo described how the state is ready to vaccinate millions of New Yorkers if only the state had the vaccine. When you talk about immune compromise, the question is, uh, what do you include in that category? And that category can uh, get very large very quickly. Uh, The prior CDC guidance on immune compromised, and I don't know the specific difference between diabetes 1, diabetes 2, on what they decided, but it's about 4 million people in New York State. Uh, Just to give you an idea of the scale, we're now at 7 million people. We only have 15 million people eligible. If you add 4 million people uh, immune compromised, you're at 11 million of 15 million, and you're still only getting 300,000 dosages per week. And the head of the federal government's COVID-19 vaccination program, Jeff Seitz, says the feds will be sending the vaccine to drugstores across the country. Starting on February 11th, the federal government will deliver vaccines directly to select pharmacies across the country. This will provide more sites for people to get vaccinated in their communities, and it's an important component to delivering vaccines equitably. This pharmacy program will expand access in neighborhoods across the country so you can make an appointment and get your shot conveniently and quickly. Jeff Zietz is head of the federal government's COVID-19 vaccination program. He had to admit, though, they still don't have enough vaccine to distribute. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, February 2nd, 2021. The news is produced Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City for the WBAI News. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.